Hey, listeners, welcome back to another episode of Being at Work. I'm your host, Andrea Butcher, and I am showing up today with so much gratitude for the show, this forum to highlight stories in for guests like today's guest that shows up with her big old heart, her gentle confidence, and reminds us of some big, important questions, questions that encourage you to reflect on who you are, what is true for you, because as she's reminded me, that is your secret sauce. You are the greatest gift that you can give to others, to any situation. Gianna Driver is the Chief Human Resources Officer at Exabeam. But what you really need to know about Gianna is how her life experiences have taught her that the best way to connect with others is to offer up your differentness. Listen in as we talk about the connections that form when we show up in a real way, the challenge of feeling like you don't belong and recognizing that we are all struggling. And listen in to the very end of the episode when Gianna uses a great movie reference to highlight how to be yourself. Check it out. When people ask me about the journey, I start with my roots. So to go there for just a moment, I was born in a very small town in East Texas to my mother who was from the Philippines and my father who was multiple generations Texan. And then when I was finished with high school, I I went up to the Wharton School in Philadelphia. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So we have to back this up. Okay, you don't often hear Philippines and Texas in the same. So oh, how was that growing up? It was different. So my mother was a mail order bride from Manila in the Philippines, met my dad after corresponding with him through letters, because back then, remember, we didn't have the internet and computers and stuff like that. And two weeks later, she and my dad married. And roughly 10 months later, I was born. Wow. At what point in your childhood did they talk with you about that? Were they always really open about that? I got pieces of the story from both of them as I, as I was growing up. And I had to weave it together because I was never sat down and the story from start to finish explained to me. I think it's worthwhile to note, and this is a big part of my journey, that my mother and father were very, very different human beings. And shortly after my birth, they separated. And I grew up with both parents, although in a joint custody environment. And I spent the majority of my time and my school time and stuff with my mother. And we lived in a women's shelter. So I grew up in a women's shelter in in small town, East Texas. And then I saw my dad on our farm, um, about 75 miles south of my of the town my mom lived in, I saw my dad on alternating weekends and, and holidays and all summer. So he was he was a very big part of my life. He's he's since passed, so it's past tense for him. But yeah, he was a very big part as well as my mom. Mm, well, I'm so sorry to hear about his passing. What an interesting childhood. How did that experience shape you? Well, I think when you grow up in an environment where your mother and father are atypical in how they met as well as just their lifestyles. I was aware of my differentness. I was, I often felt that I was the other growing up. 
And in my part of East Texas, the primary ethnic and, and racial groups are Caucasian or white Americans, Black or African Americans, and the Latinx population was primarily from Mexico. So going into the cafeteria at school during lunchtime, I was very much aware of looking around and seeing people in those, those kind of three groups, generally speaking. And I looked at myself and just thought, well, I don't know that I fit in here because I, I don't fully fit into the African-American group or the Mexican group or the white group. And so what am I, what am I doing? So at a very early age, I became aware of my differentness. You didn't see anybody in the cafeteria that looked like you. No, I was one of very, very few people who were biracial or mixed race at my school. And most of those mixes were not Filipino and, and you know, Caucasian American. But I will say, Andrea, what this taught me very early on was, huh, I don't really fit in anywhere. So I guess I kind of fit in everywhere. And so I then started to consciously go wherever I wanted. And it felt really liberating because I was sitting in that differentness and realized, oh, I've got friends who were part of the Mexican group at lunch. I've got friends who were part of the African-American or like the black group of folks at, in, you know, in the cafeteria and same thing with, you know, my Caucasian friends. And so because I didn't really fit in anywhere, I felt like I fit in equally everywhere. At what point did that start to happen? Was that really early in your life? That was in middle school. So thinking back in elementary, I'd say less so. And I, I don't know that I was as aware of my being different in the elementary years, but I think it was as I started to get into middle school, that's when I realized, oh, wait a second, we're different. I'm different. And that's where I started to really feel a bit of, a, of an outcast and then started to say, what if I just try to fit in and join these different groups? And lo and behold, they talked to me and they, they actually, you know, kind of let me in. And so that was really liberating to realize I, it was okay to be myself and be me and that other people thought that was okay as well. Wow. Emboldened by your difference, almost encouraged as a result of it. Yeah. Well, and those, and for anyone, those middle school years are just tricky and awkward and so to have this added layer, but yeah, I mean, what a life lesson to have gotten so early on mm -hmm. that I know stayed with you as you throughout your schooling. Yeah. Yeah. It was something that I was always aware of the differentness that, that I kind of had grown up with and that awareness when I went to, to Penn and to the Wharton school that was very, very much a time of transition, right? As, as many folks who might be listening to the show know, when you're either sending your kids off to school or um, you know, go through these transitions, it's a time of instability. And when I first joined the community at Wharton, I, even though I had these great experiences by being comfortable in my differentness, being so drastically different there threw me for a loop. And it was, it was challenging because the type and flavor of different at Wharton was very unlike the type of different that I felt back home in Texas. Mm -hmm. And those were hard years. Oh, I can't imagine. And tell us about the journey from East Texas to Wharton. How did that happen? And how were you feeling through that? I mean, what a transition time. 
Yeah, well, so I I finished my 10th grade year at my home home high school and then started at the University of North Texas for two years. So skipped the, you know, the so last... You were super smart, Gianna. I worked hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there, there was a wonderful program in Texas that allowed mathematically and scientifically precocious youth to skip some years in high school. That's great. And so I moved to Denton and speaking of differences, was aware that I was different than the majority of people on campus because here I am, a 15, 16-year-old kid walking around and in the same physics classes and calculus classes and all of that as folks who were 19, 20, 21 years old. So I was aware of the differentness. That flavor of different was more okay for, for whatever reason that felt okay, like that is palatable. It helped that they usually asked for study groups in my notes. So (laughs) it helps. Well, they probably were like super impressed. Like, okay, if there's a 15 year old kid here, she must be really smart in that environment. I I don't know. Is that right? I mean, that's my assumption. I could be totally wrong. There's an interesting statistic that says, I think it's 75 or 85% of people believe that they are above average intelligence. And so I don't know that I'm quote unquote, particularly more intelligent than anybody else. I think that I had a family and home life that was such that I really, really applied myself in school academically. And it was a bit of an escape for me. And so I got a lot of praise and recognition for my academic success. So that really fueled me and helped me through some other challenging times in my earlier life. But it, it was going back to the UNT experience. It was hard being younger than everybody else, but it was one that I wasn't bothered by it because to your point, I do think there was this mutual respect of, okay, well, if I'm in here and she's in here and she's making straight A's and I'm not, well, maybe I should go be friends with her. So that part felt more okay. Hmm. But it was going to Wharton that I became aware of my different life experiences and all of my other differentness was not the same type of different, if you will, as what I experienced at Wharton. Yeah. You're no longer in East Texas, right? So that differentness that became okay for you, this was a very different kind of difference. Yes. In what way? Well, I was the first generation uh, college student. And so nobody in my family had had gone to college. And for that matter, I don't know that most people where I'm from had ever even heard of a place called Wharton. So there was that element of going around and it being absolutely unfamiliar. There was also an element of being aware of the socioeconomic differences because I went from being on the economic status, I guess you'd call it lower income um, in Texas to, and in my small town in Texas at that, to then going to an environment where there was so much privilege around me. There were so many people who were from the very, very elite private schools and boarding schools and all of these different experiences. And I felt, I didn't feel good enough. I felt like, oh my gosh, like, what are they? Like, I don't belong here and I'm so different. And I felt like the poor, uneducated country bumpkin who somehow had mistakenly been led into Wharton. Mm. Gosh, that must've been awful for you. It was hard. It was one of those things where I struggled emotionally. I had 
you know, I'd always been hardworking and I thought I knew how to study the academic rigor I found challenging, the social components I found really, really challenging. And I, looking back, I think if Wharton and Penn, and I'm a huge fan of both of them, by the way, but if, if they're going to accept folks like me, having resources available that enable people from these very different backgrounds to thrive is really important. And to that end, I'm really excited that that Penn and Wharton have in the last, like since I graduated, they've spent a lot of time and energy on these resources for folks who are like me. And I, you know, when I was there even because of my struggles, did speak with some of the staff and faculty because I don't know that they were equipped and set up to help people who were so different succeed there. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because you talked about it didn't, it was okay. It sounds like it was the privilege around you and all of a sudden you feeling like not good enough. Yeah. Like I hadn't heard that yet in your story. I mean, that is gonna, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I, I think about times when I don't feel good enough and I shrink, it's really hard for me to connect or engage or to step out. Absolutely. And a, a story in particular that that I remember from my my first year at Wharton was some friends of mine, we lived on the same hall. They had gone up to New York for a shopping trip and I wasn't able to go. I think I had a final or midterms or something like that, that I wanted to stay and study for. So they went up, came back and we were in the, the cafeteria having, I think it was dinner. And they mentioned that, oh yeah, we you know, had a great time in New York went shopping, so fun. And I was, I was giddy with excitement. And I was like, oh, okay, like, what'd you get? What'd you get? Oh, that's so cool. I want to see it. Well, they'd spent about 2000 or so dollars and bought two things. It was like a pair of jeans and a pair of shoes. And I thought, well, what else did you get? <laughs> because where I come from, that's big money. And if you spend that kind of money, you're probably pulling up a truck and it's going to be filled with stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that's like back to school shopping, maybe two years in a row. Yes, (laughs) yes. And it was that, it was moments like that where I just thought, oh my gosh, like I don't know that I belong here because I couldn't fathom spending that kind of money and coming back home with (laughs) two things. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't think anything of it. That was so normal for them. Right. That said, though, one of the beautiful things that came about is as I started to really get to know the other classmates at, at Wharton, and as we went through just the, the emotional rigors and roller coaster of being in this new environment together and going through classes and all of these other shared experiences, I started to realize, huh, we're actually more similar than we are dissimilar, like at our core, we're all basic humans who want to feel like we're contributing. We want to feel appreciated. And it was then that I started to intentionally say, well, what if I'm just me? Because it's really exhausting trying to fit in and be someone I'm not. And so I started to let my guard down a little bit and with intention, be myself. Andrea, that was welcomed. That was then this environment that initially had been so hard turned around and was a really amazing, thriving, supportive environment where I was, I was valued for this different opinion and perspective. And it was so powerful for me. 
Mm. What does that look like? Being yourself. Can you give me an example of showing up in a way that is so true to who you are and it driving connection? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think of some of the specific examples. I was part of several extracurricular activities. One of them was a um, an Asian dance troupe that was really fun. And we do events and and fundraisers and all of this other stuff. And when we would do performances, a lot of times things were, there was a, a price tag for tickets. And we really wanted to have people come to our events and we wanted to sell out and then also, you know, raise money for whatever the cause or the whatever was. And I don't remember the exact dollar. It could have been $10 or $20 or something like that, which in the grand scheme of, of one's annual earnings is probably negligible. However, for a college student who didn't have, you know, didn't come from money, there was actually a sizable chunk of change. And so I remember sitting in the leadership meeting for this dance troupe and feeling at first uncomfortable talking about, well, maybe we should have a sliding scale or have some other options for people who can't afford the tickets. Because I, for one, I was in the the performance, so I didn't have to pay for tickets, but I just thought, well, if I did have to pay for tickets, if I wanted to go, I wouldn't be able to go. So it wouldn't have been accessible. And so I felt scared to say that initially in, in one of the, like, the leadership meetings. And then I realized, no, like actually, if the mission is to be inclusive and to get as many people here as possible, including people that um, can't afford it, then we should have a sliding scale. I'm still supportive of the fundraiser and doing that type of stuff, but let's also have some tickets set aside for people who may not be able to pay and maybe, the, you know, like have there be no shame associated with that. And so I, I think I very timidly <laughs> made this suggestion. And I think folks didn't realize that there was like, it, just, it had never occurred to people. And then when that idea and suggestion was embraced and we did that, and we had people who then joined because it was accessible to them now and they didn't have, you know, to pay it was a really liberating moment that felt like, oh, wow, like it's, it's okay to, to be different and it's okay to, to be myself. It added a lot of value and created connection in the process. What I hear you saying, like part of being yourself is, is just being willing to say what you're thinking, to express how you're feeling, to express the perspective that you have as different as it may be. Very much so. Very much so. And it, it's something that in hindsight, it's, it's easy to sort of say However, in practice, having the courage to be who you are, especially when that is not the prevailing opinion or thought, it can be really hard. But you're right. I think ultimately we owe it also to ourselves and to our communities to be who we are and to show up as we are. Well, and there's something, as you're talking, there's something very interesting that's coming to mind. I've never thought about this before. And you know, you hear so much about like how you say something is just as important and a, lot, and a lot of times more important even than what you say, right? How you say mm-hmm. it. I'm thinking of you in that moment. And I suspect that your like your voice intonation, the way in which you're leaning in, I suspect all of that was very similar. Mm-hmm. You didn't say like, hey guys, you're being ridiculous. Like this is what you need to do. You offered up I mean, I'm trying to think of like the best way to describe it, but it's almost like tentative talk. Like I suspect you probably said something like, Mm -hmm. maybe I could offer a different idea or Mm -hmm. there's just a very, as a gentleness. 
it's a gentle confidence that I get from you. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, Andrea, for, for saying that. And I believe that I probably did have a bit of a gentle approach. And one of the things I've had to, or I've learned to really embrace as I've gotten older and progressed in my career and stuff is life is a lot easier when we are ourselves, when we are truly ourselves. And then when we receive recognition, promotions, like et cetera, when we are who we are, it's a lot more authentic. And initially, I think we all try on different personas early in our career. And there was a part of me that did try on different personas to your point of the intonations and just way of being. And it was at the time, there were very few women out here in Silicon Valley and in tech companies and stuff. And so um, looking around, there weren't a lot of role models and mentors. And I did adopt this kind of, at least for a short time, like this kind of gruff, harsh thing. A, it was super exhausting to try to be someone you're not and to, you know, to be more whatever the harsh or like sharp elbowed. And then I think I just got exhausted <laughs> and wanted to try to be myself. And you're right. I think there was this kind of surrendering and this gentle approach. And I'm, I'm so grateful that we now live in a world that has this awareness and we can be ourselves. Yes. And to your point, as you offer up your differentness, that creates connection. Because the thing you said earlier that we all have in common, it's like, what is our sameness that we all just want to be seen, be heard, be loved, mm-hmm. be valued, appreciated, be valued. feel like we belong. And think about how connection is created when the guard comes down. If we're trying to be something we're not, we're creating this false wall there that keeps connection from happening. Absolutely. Because we're trying to prove something. And and I and can't you feel that? I can certainly feel that in myself when I show up that way. Yeah. I see it in leaders all the time. I was with an executive team yesterday. I was taking them through um, some team development and the CEO, the entire time I was just thinking like, dude, like everyone just wants you to be who you are. Like, why are you trying to pretend so hard that you have it all together? Like nobody does. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That vulnerability. Mm-hmm it builds authentic connection. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of times in when I'm speaking with leaders or, or execs, there are times where I get the sense people want to fit a persona. They want to you know, be, have an image and there's a fear of, well, if I'm myself and I show my vulnerability and my, my differentness or my, my humanity here, I'm going to be perceived as weak. I'm going to be perceived as, as not knowing something or, or not being the best there is or, or whatever. What I say to folks when I hear that is, well, it actually brings a lot more connection and authenticity to the room when you are yourself. And sometimes that's a little bit mm-hmm. messy. Sometimes that's a little bit raw. But when you do that, it enables others to be themselves and to have psychological safety and trust And that's where innovation and magic happens. Absolutely. And it just feels so much better as well. Like the entire energy in the room shifts as a result of that. Like it's it's palpable, right? You can feel it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a much more joyful way. It's interesting to hear you talk about all these different environments and even tech companies early in your career where there weren't a lot of women and over and over, you have found yourself in environments where you were different. Mm -hmm. 
And as you've reflected on those, you, you've learned that it is offering up your differentness that really helps you connect. So today, you are super passionate about creating workplaces and environments and cultures where everyone feels safe and encouraged to be who they are. Mm-hmm. What is the impact of that? When we are who we are, just kind of putting on the business hat here for just a moment, it's a lot more efficient, first of all, because there's less energy expenditure trying to be someone we're not. We are who we are, and it's frankly a lot easier to be who we are. I think our ability to trust one another goes up because you've probably been in situations where you're in a room and you're meeting people and you can just sort of tell when someone's not being real with you and they're not being authentic. Well, that impedes your ability to connect with them when you are who you are. And that sometimes means being different than enables true connection. And we are a social species, regardless of if you're introverted, extroverted, whatever, we still need human connection. Being who we are, including being different, allows us to truly connect, which I think is critical to happiness and productivity and and joy. How does one go about figuring out who they are. You've used that language through our entire conversation, like being who you are. What if I don't know who I am? What if I don't know how to be who I am? What if I've always put on a mask or a persona and that feels more comfortable to me? You know, the image and story that comes to mind when you ask that question is a Hollywood reference. If you've seen the movie Runaway Bride with Julia Roberts, Yes. In that movie, um, spoiler alert for anybody listening, in that movie, Julia Roberts has multiple potential partners that she's going to walk down the aisle with. And in those different scenarios, she doesn't know who she is. So every morning when she's at different breakfasts with these suitors or fiancés or partners, she has her eggs however they like it. And one day she has them poached, one day they're scrambled, the next they're, they're boiled and you know, the movie takes place over a series of, of months and years. And at the very end, she realizes, I need to figure out who I am. What, who am I if I'm being true to myself? And so it actually shows her going to a cafe by herself and having a plate of all of the different types of eggs <laughs> and then realizing, oh my gosh, and I don't remember if it was poached or whatever, but she realizes, okay, this is me and this is who I am. Mm. And I think in some ways, if we translate that into the real world, I think part of the journey of being who we are is to pause for a moment, to reflect and to ask ourselves, what is true for me? How do I really feel about that? Did I authentically express my voice and share my opinions and beliefs? Or similarly, did I express something that isn't true and in cohesion with how I really feel about something? Right? Did I allow myself to be influenced by my perceptions of others around me or groupthink or whatever? But I think it's in finding these moments of quiet space and reflection that we can then start to really lean into and listen and know who we are so that then we can find our voice as we show up in the world with others. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. I had forgotten that runaway bride, <laughs> that that was like the key premise of the show. And I mean, what mm-hmm. I hear in that too is just reminders to self-exploration, mm-hmm. your, your preferences, your motivators, mm-hmm. t- just taking time. And, and I know throughout my career, like I'm perpetually peeling back the layers 
and learning new things every day. And isn't that a big part of the journey? It's just paying attention Mm -hmm. to how do I feel about this? There's so much going on in the world right now. And I'm always challenging myself to like take time to figure out like, okay, what is my point of view? Because it's so easy to take on like a really smart friend said something like, okay, yes, that's what I believe. Or, oh no, that person, that's what I believe. Like, no, I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to like filter it through my values, Mm -hmm. through my beliefs, through like my vision and get grounded in a message so that I can convey that with confidence. Yep. And to have an open heart and an open mind as we do that, because at any given moment in time, we, we may learn something that then impacts and allows us to evolve our, our thinking. And I think that's the wonderful thing about life and living an empowered life where we are comfortable with who we are is as information changes and becomes available and our knowledge grows and we evolve, we then, if we're empowered and we accept ourselves, we can then change our perspectives and opinions and, and beliefs on things as needed, right? Because nothing is static or said another way, everything in life is some stage and flavor of evolution. The world is dynamic. And I do think part of being who we are is leaning in, listening, but then always approaching situations and and interactions with an open heart and an open mind, being willing to listen and to learn. Yeah. Certainty has gotten me in trouble many times. Yes. Yeah. Because really, I don't know anything about anything. I mean, because it is all in flux, isn't it? I have some thoughts and today, based on what's happening and my experiences, I have some thoughts, but that's what they are. There's a quote that says, the wiser you get, the less you know. And I think that's true, right? Because it's like, yeah, like with wisdom, we realize, goodness, there's actually a lot of stuff we don't know. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Well, and that like drives curiosity and such a growth orientation. And Mm -hmm. there's always more, right? Always more layers to peel back. Absolutely. Gianna, thank you so much for this. It's such an empowering message, this offering up your differentness, recognizing that that's what creates connection. And so you've encouraged all of us to really think through what does that mean for each of us and how can we bring that in a gentle, open way? So thank you for sharing. Thank you for this opportunity, Andrea. It's been great. If our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Send me a note on LinkedIn, connect with me, send me a message. I try to be on there multiple times a week. So that's probably the best way. Great. Thank you, Gianna. Yeah. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a being at work story.